Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is freelance writer TJ Hafer. Hey, what's up? Welcome back, TJ. Yeah, it's been a while. It has indeed. Uh, we have not had enough Viking-related shows, so your expertise wasn't really required. Uh, <laughs> but tonight, uh, since we're going to be talking about Grey Goo, and you reviewed it for IGN, I uh, figured it was time to bring you, bring you on home. Yeah, well, I'm glad to be back. Uh, and we also welcome, uh, visiting from the Gamers with Jobs podcast, is uh, Sean Sirtis Andrich. Hey, it's nice to be here. Aren't the Goos basically Vikings? Aren't they the Vikings of, of this game, I feel like? They they do have sort of like a, a raid and pillage and disappear into the night play style, so I oh, can yeah. see the parallel. I can mm-hmm. see the parallel mm-hmm. there, so, yeah. Uh, so as you might have guessed, we are taking a little break from our Winter of Wargaming uh, to talk about what I think is a pretty exciting new RTS, and uh, from the impressions I've gotten from my fellow panelists here, I think we're, we're all agreed that it's kind of a cool game, uh, that we might disagree on the degree uh, to which it's a cool game. Uh, obviously the person I really wish were here so I could argue with him and tell him why he's um, a, a joyless... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Tom Chick, really. Who doesn't love um, hearing that? Destroyer of joy. <laughs> uh, because Tom wrote a really interesting and a very... not not overwhelmingly negative, but a very, very critical uh, review of, of Grey Goo that we'll definitely be talking about in some of his criticisms. Uh, but as we dive into this, uh, we should talk a little bit about what Grey Goo is. And uh, TJ, why don't you take us in? What, what's, what sets this, R- this RTS apart? Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, what sets it apart is it, it, it plays a lot like an RTS from like the 90s or early 2000s. It's, it's, it's a style of gameplay that was sort of monolithic in the PC space for a long time. And now, like aside from StarCraft, we just don't get a lot of games uh, like this. With the twist being that they've gone way, uh, way out of out of the normal realm of sanity, one might even say, with, with the asymmetrical gameplay where they have one faction that is basically... More off the wall, I think, than any other faction I've I've played with in a, a previous RTS. The, the the goo basically being a, a mobile blob that sucks up resources and keeps going, and then um, you know spits out units from this moving blob. Um, that's kind of the the biggest thing that sets it apart from other games like it. So, anyway, do we have a sense of why they went with the name Gray Goo? That it's it's a actually science fiction slash futurism. It's it's a the term's been around for a while. Just like this hypothesis of what might happen if self-replicating nanobots got out of our control. They they postulate that it might start converting the entire universe into what would look like gray goo. So that's where they borrowed the name from. But and and this is the thing. I, I I think it is a term that makes a lot of sense to people who sort of read like spec sci-fi and, and right, right. follow these sorts of thought experiments. Uh, but I don't feel it's like. Um, Okay, so if somebody says the singularity, I think a lot of people, even with a casual interest in sci-fi, are like, oh, the machines, they, they become self-aware, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Uh, but I think if, when, you, when you talk about uh, Grey Goo and put it on the, uh, slap that name on a box, uh, I, I think it doesn't necessarily fire the imagination the oh, same it's, way. It's so, on the box. It's not even just no, a, yeah. the name of a faction. They're like, they're leaning all the way into it. Uh, and that yeah, was, yeah. it was actually a real like it's it's something I had to actually get over in order to get interested in the game rather than it drawing me in with its quirkiness. Interesting, yeah, that's interesting because I knew basically when I heard the title of the game, I knew basically what it was going to be about. But I might overestimate how much of the general population is into all that crazy, weird, you know, futurism and stuff like that. So, yeah, when I um. I have a little bit of a grudge against the title of this game because I botched it for a uh, a preview for PC Gamer, as a matter oh, no. of fact, uh, because it is Grey Goo, Grey with an E, uh, but it's published by Grey Box, uh, Grey with an A. And so naturally, uh, being an American and not a pretentious dick, uh, when I wrote my preview, I was because I never saw during the entire day at Petroglyph the name of the game actually projected on anything. I just knew the, knew the name. We only said it. Uh, so I, I, 
I spent like a week or so writing this preview, go through all these edits, uh, send it off, and then uh, then managing editor of PC Gamer, uh, Corey Banks, contacts me like two days after uh, the issue went to press, and he's like, yeah, by the way, um, it, it, it's, gray, it's gray with an E. Uh, you got it wrong in print. Here's the thing. I'm I'm American. I grew up in like Colorado and Kansas my entire life. I've always spelled it with an E. I was surprised when they had me localizing PC Gamer UK stuff from GRA or GREY to GRAY and telling me that was the American way to do it. I know that's not exactly strategy game related, but yeah. I've always spelled it with an E. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, it was definitely it was definitely something that I that I had to get over both my my furious yeah. hatred for that spelling because I botched it for a uh, a, a print issue, but also it, it did sort of uh, my eyebrows sort of raised raised when I heard the title. And to get in a little background for this, I'm not sure Petroglyph stock has been particularly high as an RTS developer in quite some time. Universe at War was not good. Yeah, it was not good. I did. I skipped that one because I remember I it too, got yeah. some pretty cold reactions, uh, and just looked. It, it it looked like it really did not have any sort of original idea. Uh, it looked very it looked like if you if you think of generic RTS, I think Universe at War kind of kind of looked the part. Uh, it was certainly a game that I, that I ended up taking a flyer on, and uh, then Petroglyph sort of got detoured uh, for a long time with um, Rise of Nations, right? Not Rise of Nations. No. Um, End of Nations. Rise yeah. of Nations is, a, is an all-time classic. <laughs> End yes. of Nations uh, was an RTS, uh, a free-to-play RTS that they were making with Tryon, and I, f- I, I saw that years ago. And it was a really awkward event because it was one of those things where you're sitting there and they're, they're showing you the game, they're taking the cover off it, uh, and you're like one of the first people to see it, and you're sitting there thinking like, uh, this, this, is, this doesn't look good at all, and, and you, don't, you don't have an idea where you're going. And uh, so, so I think you know, Petroglyph probably lost years where they were kind of stuck trying to figure out a way to make a, a free-to-play RTS uh, you know, something viable, ended up turning to a, a kind of MOBA RTS, which uh, actually was kind of interesting by the time it was canceled. But I think, but you know, since I would say for a lot of the 2000s, um, Petroglyph was not really viewed as a top tier RTS developer anymore, uh, despite the many, many connections to, to Westwood that they have. Yeah, I don't think they ever really uh, climbed out of it. Their their first game was Star Wars: Empire at War, uh, which was kind of a that was like an Age of Empires two Star Wars mashup, basically, right? Yeah, I think it ran on the Age of Empires two engine, but yeah. it was kind of its own thing. Yeah. Kind of, yeah, and then and then from there, it just it's it's a really forgettable list. Um, so Grey Goose kind of it's re- it's really the first petroglyph game I've come I've come to to play and actually come out of it and feeling like oh this is actually really cool and it's actually got a personality which i really appreciate uh and it's and it's actually doing something that's simple uh which is something that the rts genre has really been lacking for me for quite a while Uh, i kind of like the sort of half step back they did they sort of walked it back from the these real deep micro dives into all these different systems and and really kept the unit count the building count and everything they really pared that down and then focused on the personalities of the three different uh, factions you can play as. So it really, it's almost like they're kind of channeling Blizzard in the same way when Blizzard goes into the MOBA space with Heroes of the Storm. They want to take that genre, take some of the complexity out, but give you a lot more personality and give you just the, the kind of big chunky bits for you to sink your teeth into and not worry about the details so much. I feel like that's kind of what Grey Goo is doing uh, as much as it's a throwback as well. Yeah, the main the main thing I came away from, uh, from Grey Goo with was I called it refreshing. Like this is the sort of game I remember playing when I was first getting into PC gaming, like the, the feel of it is, is very much in tune with that. And I didn't even realize how much I had been wanting to play a game like this. That was, you know, on a, on a modern engine and with some modern ideas injected into it. And that was really uh, one of the biggest parts about why I liked it so much is they're just, I mean, other than Starcraft, of course, there isn't much else out there that's filling the niche that it's filling and it, it does it in its own way. 
uh, in a way that's you know it makes it good in a different way than you know Starcraft Two is. So yeah, you know it's you know my my first reaction was I was sort of surprised that I had the same feeling like I hadn't even realized that I'd forgotten this kind of RTS. I I I I'd, I'd had I'd had sort of a longing for this kind of RTS they they cranked out in the nineties, um, and I'm not sure. I think that might be deceptive. The more I thought about it, I don't remember 90s RTSs being this good. I remember them being sort of like this. But actually, they, most of them left me cold. And that's why I think I became such a diehard Blizzard fan. And then when um, Relic sort of arrived to sort of shake things up, I, I sort of latched onto that. Because I actually never really liked the Command & Conquer games after Red Alert. Um, I, I thought that formula got really stale. Um, I, I, I just it was it was never it was never my kind of game. And then there were all these clones that were basically doing the same sort of thing that Command and Conquer was doing, and um, so I think that became sort of the cliche version of an RTS and was not well regarded in retrospect. And I think that was for for a lot of good reasons. And so I think this is one of those things where it's like. It's retro, like it reminds you of these design sensibilities that were dominant in the 90s, but it's not actually a 90s RTS, you know what I mean? Like, it borrows a, it borrows a lot, and it sort of riffs on those themes, but it, it's actually doing a lot of things that, that are very different. So I think the familiarity, um, it, it sort of cleverly uses that familiarity. It's going, to, it's going to evoke things you remember from when you were a kid playing these games in the 90s, uh, but the more I think about it, I, I don't think it really has as much in common as, as, I, initially, as I initially thought. Um, and, and so I, I, I kind of view it as it's like sort of like neo nineties RTS, mm. uh, you know, if it had a prog rock soundtrack, I'd probably, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably be more in, in that kind of headspace, but I agree. It, it really doesn't, it, it's reminiscent, but it does have those, those modern niceties, you know, it, even just in terms of its interface and the way they make it so easy to recognize here's that building and immediately under it, here's the hotkey for it. It's all right there in front of you. It's, it is actually very intuitive. A lot of those old 90s RTS games, they weren't. Uh, their interfaces were just, uh, they were awful. Uh, they, they weren't necessarily clear. They relied on a lot of uh, sort of inborn knowledge of the genre. And uh, Grey Goo doesn't really assume that you know anything uh, with its interface. And so it keeps it really streamlined. Well, just as an aside there, I would say, like, every time I go back to the games from, like, the 90s and early 2000s, I come to realize that the tooltip might be the single most important strategy game innovation in, like, <laughs> history. Because, uh, yes. yeah. like, the difference between what I find playable now and what I find unplayable <laughs> back then is often just, like, you go to these old games and you hover over something... And it's some sort of cryptic symbol. And you're like, what, what does this do? And I'm not an archaeologist. To tell you. What is this glyph? Like, what does this mean? Oh, that's select all, no, obviously. Yeah, every time I go back to these old games, it is like I am basically like LARPing the dig. <laughs> well, the, the thing with the old games is like you would be reading the manual in school waiting to go home to play the game. And so you would have like, a, you know, a bachelor's degree in the interface by the time you actually started playing it and it was done installing. These days, you know, that doesn't really happen anymore. Yeah. They just teach you everything inside the game. So I want, I want to talk a little bit about, um, well, the control scheme, because one of the things that Petroglyph were, were very proud of, uh, proud of with this game, which is that they, uh, they sort of borrowed from the, the MOBA template where, um, your, your typical MOBA has the Q power, the W power, yeah. the E, mm -hmm. and R, they use the QWERTY row. And, yeah. uh, in, in Great Goo, they just kind of extend that out and route all your major commands through that same row. And so you just kind of move through levels of the uh, command interface uh, just using the QWERTY row. And so there's there's no real need to remember most hotkeys. There's only a couple that, that are useful for things like setting patrol routes and, and that sort of thing. And I found that kind of revelatory. Uh, I liked it a lot. I liked it a lot, actually. Yeah, uh, it's it's it clicks more with the way I remember things than having to remember, you know, a specific context, you know, hotkey for what unit I'm going to build if I hit this button with this building selected or something. Yeah, I, you know, it's I think it's telling that one of the things, for instance, when I watch like Pro Starcraft, one of the things that like most players <laughs> yeah. do is that they they all have their own separate hotkeys. Uh, they all have their own their own idea of how the, the interface should be, and I think part of that is 
because a lot of the interfaces, and this is, I think this is a way in which StarCraft really is a 90s, or StarCraft 2 really is a 90s RTS in some, some key ways. All those hotkeys make sense um, if you were confining it to one menu at a time, right? Like, oh, you're in the right. engineering bay, uh, so so hit, like, A for the armor upgrade or something like that. All this stuff sort of makes sense individually, but the problem is when you extend that out through an entire game with all these different units with their, their own special powers, uh, you know, all these buildings with their own separate upgrades, and then across three different races... It becomes this sort of really baroque, hard to manage, uh, you know, interface. Yeah. And I think um, Greku's approach to, to always having everything return to sort of the the art this this home row concept uh, is really important and really made it easy to um, really easy to macro. Uh, to, to you know, like it, it's one of those things where I was able to stay on top of everything that's happening in a game much more easily through this. Now, I will say, though, does Gregu cheat a little bit? Is it maybe too simple? I, I think one of the things, like, one of the big criticisms that Tom Chick leveled in his review is that, um, you know, they, they've kind of, they kind of canned the idea of units with special powers and, like, you know, toggleable states. And, um, you know, even in my review, I said this is an RTS where you will get shockingly far by just doing attack move. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Completely. Um, yeah. I, I love that there's not a bunch of special moves per unit. That That's one of those RTS learning curve things that drives me nuts. Uh, it's it's one of those things that uh, I'm not an RTS maven. I don't, I don't play a lot of these games, certainly not anymore. So I like the fact, and I was confused by the fact at first, that I was creating units and I'm like, okay, these are the basics, but eventually I'm going to unlock some where there's a tank with a siege mode or a, a unit with a stealth mode or something. And there's just not like they just, they all do their function and that's it. And, and I can see how that can be a turnoff if you're really into the nuance of, of the genre and you really like to have that, those crunchy things to be managing and maybe you get bored really easily, but I feel like Grey Goo's got enough going on. I don't need my individual units to have three different functions on top of trying to manage the overall uh, war effort and everything else, too. Well, kind of one of the issues I had with it, and I was actually talking with uh, Ian Birnbaum about this, who reviewed it for PC Gamer, is they're they're trying to push the idea that, yeah, you're not doing a lot of micro. It's more about you know strategic decisions and having a good economic pipeline laid down and, and all that stuff. Um, but I feel like the unit cap kind of hinders that. I feel like a 200-unit cap works well for a game like StarCraft that is micro-heavy and has activated uh, you know, abilities and stuff like that for the units. When you have a 200-unit cap and you're trying to make it about strategy over tactics and about you know good economic practices and things like that, I, I really think it limits you to the point that you know, I'll hit the unit cap, and I'll re I will have to be microing these units. They might not have clickable abilities, but if I'm not focus firing well and micromanaging every single battle down to the which guys do more damage to which other guys on the other side, um, I I feel like I'm going to end up losing. Um, you know, you can attack move up to a certain point, but equal engagement. You know, all other things being equal, it's one of the more micro heavy games I've played. You know, for that reason. I don't know if you guys had that similar experience, but definitely playing against like the harder AIs uh, on some of the harder campaign missions, and uh, I did some multiplayer against a developer. I kind of got that sense. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I've only played on uh, full disclosure. Uh, I, I'm really I'm, I'm in Grey Goo for a pre. I think I'm I'm here <laughs> to represent this sort of like the casual approach to this game, which I think a lot of people would be approaching it as, which is. Give me a cool campaign with some cutscenes. Give me some cool missions where I'm doing different things. There's a sort of puzzle-like quality to them. Uh, so I am playing on normal. And in the early part of these missions, I am getting my ass kicked over and over and over again because I can't micro super well because they're attacking my base before even a pro. And there's nobody who could produce units to defend themselves yet. And so mm -hmm. they put you in a position where you need to crank out one or two guys and sort of really babysit them and try and get these things nailed down before you can get your defenses established and, and get yourself set up well enough that you can actually start to build up a little bit. Um, 
I, I, I can see where the micro comes in as you get uh, as you get deeper into the difficulty, and it should be there. I mean, if we don't have yeah. that, then the game is really boring, and it really doesn't have a lot of depth. Uh, but I think that it I think it plays to both sides of that pretty well. Uh, if you're not interested in a super micro heavy game, you can play on normal and and play it basically like Command and Conquer. You can make a huge group of units and just select all and move them on and they all just go and shoot the shit out of everything and it it kind of pans out but uh, at the same time i i i feel like in gray goo i've had unit like armies that i felt were indestructible that were just so big and so built up and just had them wiped in 30 seconds just with right. the right units coming out at the right time um and just completely obliterating me so i, I can see that nuance there and i'm starting to get bitten by it as i get farther into the and- campaign Right, and and if you compare it to something like a Supreme Commander, where it's taking place on such a macro scale that you know overarching strategy does matter a lot more than your fine unit control and your micro and your tactics and stuff like that, I feel like it doesn't really hit that break point where you know my strategy and my macro becomes more important than how I can control my units because there's there really just aren't that many of them, so. Yeah, I'm of two minds about this, and this is something that I sort of had had to address in my review. Is like I don't know how well this is going to hold up as an RTS. Like, and these are unanswerable questions. Like anyone who like reviewed StarCraft back in the day and was like, "This is going to be an R- genre-defining RTS <laughs> for the next ten years, and it will become the foundation for the most serious competitive scene gaming has ever known." Uh, that person it was was a was a freaking liar. Nobody knew that. Uh, and also, the game wasn't balanced for shit uh, when it came out. But that's that's another matter. <laughs> um, I'm not sure this one is either. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it's something that you, like I kind of had to put that on the back burner because there, there's there's reservations I have, but I need to see. I, I basically need to grind out a lot more games on, on ladder and such before before I start to form a real opinion about that. Uh, I, I I get where you're coming from, TJ, because I, I've had a couple games where the game makes it so easy to macro, and then you get that 200 population cap that I've definitely had a few games against humans and AI where I can basically just totally like screw up an engagement, uh, but. The the cap is so low, and it's so easy to sort of restock your queues and everything. And you can keep building factories; you can always build more. That I find it very easy to sort of remax uh, incredibly quickly in this game, and it will turn a little bit uh, stalemate-ish. Uh, just as I have made what should be like game destroying mistakes, but because there's this cap and the other guy can only have so much out on the field and it is so easy to sort of fill up my entire production pipeline uh, that I've definitely had moments where I'm able to basically get out of jail for free uh, just because I can sort of open up all my large factories and queue up just an absolute ton of units and, and, and remax very quickly. And that might be an artifact of the, uh, the, the 200 population cap. But at the same time, like... The, these games are on a little bit of a timer because if you if you if you if you're constantly having to crank out new units and the other guy keeps his army intact uh, and he's not spending those resources, once the elites come out, it's the, the game gets very very difficult if you don't have one of your own. Oh, and, yeah, and that's utterly. something that yeah, yeah, that and then the elites are are such a major part of the game. Um, you know, I think even perhaps, uh, and, and again, I'm not I'm not an expert, but perhaps more than StarCraft II, even uh, the elites in in Grey Goo are are essential. Uh, in in the in the co-op games that uh, Rob and I have played, basically what I've done is I've played as Beta, I turtle up, and I just rush to get um, the uh, hand mm-hmm. of Rook out as quickly as humanly possible because that thing is if they don't if if the if whoever you're playing against isn't countering you with their own elite uh they're gonna have a hell of a time getting that thing off the field uh if you if you protect it properly uh they're not i wouldn't say indestructible but they're really really tough to take down and and you can't do it unless you have a really complete army in the first place yeah, yeah, and all the elites have pretty massive area of effect damage uh, weapons. And so if you're forced to confront those with, like, a purely conventional army, you're in deep trouble because the thing is what you've got going for you is numbers. But even if you're swarming this thing, 
a single shot from pretty much any of the elites can take down a ton of your units in one go. And that's yeah. going to be very hard to overcome. And yeah. so, like, I've had a couple games where, like, you know, I've got a good economy, but I've got an elite sort of churning its way across the battlefield, and I can keep throwing waves at it and try to hit it from different angles. It's got too many hit points, and it's taking down too many of my units in one shot. It's just, it's, the, the math is against me. And so... I kind of feel like the, the the skill of Grey Goo, at least, is either you need to make sure that their elite doesn't come out before you have even a chance to get your own yeah. out. Like, yours has got to be coming out soon in that same window. Uh, or you got to sort of sniff out when they're going for that, because it is a huge yeah. investment of time and resources. And you got to sniff that out and start doing the kind of harassment that uh, prevents that elite from ever, from ever taking you down. So, I mean... Yeah. I think maybe that is, is kind of that kind of offsets the population cap issue a little bit because really the 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 you know if, you, if you're sort of just trading blows and just cranking out armies and you can remax uh, endlessly that'll work for a while but eventually someone's going to get these trades going in their favor and they will be able to invest in an elite while the other guys sort of just restocking the pond. Yeah, the the majority of my multiplayer wins have been when I've gotten an elite out and the the enemy has not, and I don't think I've actually ever lost a match where I got an elite out and the other person didn't also have one. Uh, like the one of the games I played for the review against Dan Stapleton, who you know he's a he's a pretty seasoned RTS player. My base was like wrecked, like my factories were gone, all my production was down. And I I got the the hand of Rook up with like nine seconds left. He was about to come <laughs> in and, and destroy it. And I swept his army all the way across the map and won the match. Like there's such a huge yeah. force uh, multiplier well, and a huge <laughs> part is, of the meta. That is a concerning story, TJ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's so, exactly what it is. Uh, we we should actually I think talk about what the three factions are. We've actually kind of glossed over that, and it, it's it, the differences between them are, are actually pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I think the the thing that like sort of jumps out at you, and I think TJ and I both talked about this at length in our reviews, is the goo itself is a profoundly weird faction. Um, yeah, I was watching. Uh, it, it's funny watching this game sort of make the rounds. I was watching um, Dan Artostas Demkowski, uh his stream the other night, and he is a a big time StarCraft II commentator and everything, and it was one of the best players in in America for quite some time in Brood War. Uh, so this guy who who knows from RTS, and I saw him playing around in skirmish with Goo. And it was like ten minutes of just like feudal fumbling around, and he was like, "Okay, I just." Did he only build one mother goo the whole game? He had no idea. The artosis what... goo. Yeah, <laughs> the artosis <laughs> goo. Yeah, uh, yeah, basically because it, because the goo is so weird. There's not even a place for you to get your bearings, and this is what got him. And honestly, I kind of wondered if I hadn't had a developer sort of walking me through it the first time. Uh, I'm not sure I would have known how to deal with the goo at first either because like it doesn't look like a normal faction. You don't have a base, you don't have buildings, you just got this goo that gets larger as you sort of sit mm -hmm. on the resource vents, the catalyst vents. Um but it's there's definitely nothing about it that's that's intuitive and it doesn't follow really any of the rules for faction design. Well, they're completely nomadic. Uh, they they don't sit still. You start in a corner, and it's completely yeah. up to you if you want to bother even starting there. I mean, you'll probably sit on a vent for a bit so you can split off, right? Because you start as one blob, you you it, you basically cut it in two, and a blob emerges from your. It's actually a really cool graphical uh, way they've presented all this stuff. A blob splits off, mm -hmm. and then you go. You have two blobs on vents. I really do get the sense you could just spend the the opening five minutes of the game doing nothing but just spreading, just putting yourself on little vents throughout the entire map, not even bothering to build units. Because one of the things that's frustrating fighting against the goo, and you run into this in the campaign, it's a really bizarre game of whack-a-mole. Yeah. Because every time yeah. you go to, it's like a tube of toothpaste. You go to one end of the map and you clear all the goo out on one end. You get all the vents clear. And they're, meanwhile, just repropagating themselves on the other side. Then they skirt around you and just repopulate the other vents too. They're really actually hard to if, beat because they don't have like a central place. They're, they're everywhere. If a goo player is a real dick, they can drag out a multiplayer match a good extra 20 to 30 minutes after they've basically been beaten. That's that's definitely one of the concerns I had, um, you know, uh, in terms of just the multiplayer scene 
with Grey Goo. It reminds me of playing uh, Age of Empires 2 in these big eight-player matches, and I would get wiped out, but i get one villager scooted off just before... And so they think I'm done, and I'd like set this little villager in a corner, yeah. and I'd start to build my new base and get all my units back up. I mean, you'd never be a contender at that point, but you could just sort of uh, harass everybody else and just be a thorn in someone's side. Uh, the goo feel like they're built around that concept. Yeah, you can definitely troll with the goo a little bit. But the the other cool thing is the mother goos themselves ignore terrain. But the things they split off into to form the, the proteans, basically, the, that form whatever subunits you, you want to make, those two basically have the same properties of a mother goo. They can mm -hmm. ignore terrain. They can show up. So, you know, if you're goo, you can actually very cleverly not build an army. Like, it's, until you build the units, you have no real location. You're not tied to a location. So you can just be oozing around the map with all these little proteans and then pop an army up at will right. in one location. Depending on what the other guy's building. Uh, right, other, right. Whatever the other player's building, be like, oh, okay, well, here's the counter for that. Spit out 20 of them and, and wipe them out. Like, they're terrifying for that. But they don't have air. And that's yeah. actually, that's mm -hmm. that's their sort of Achilles heel, right? It's like, they can, you know, like, against Goo, like, air scouting is, is really important. That's kind of the only way to sort of match that ability that they can have to show up anywhere, is you sort of need to drain the swamp. Uh, but, so it's, it's, it's this really interesting faction, but at the same time, well, we'll go to balance in a minute. Uh, because I want to talk about something else that, that people have brought up, because this seems divisive. The goo are really interesting. Everyone talks about the goo. The other two factions, the beta and the humans, uh, Tom Chick, and I've read a couple other reviews that say they're they're kind of vanilla factions, and they're, they're kind of clones of each other. I thought that at first, I ended up disagreeing, but I, I'm curious yeah. what your take is. I don't think they're really clones at all. I actually talked in my review about how I feel like the, the humans are almost at an inherent disadvantage against the beta because everything in their base needs to be connected by those conduits, basically, and the conduits usually can't extend outside what would be considered your main and your natural expansion in, in another RTS. And I don't think I've ever seen that before, where they're actually, they're the opposite of the goo. They are locked down to one spot. The beta can always go build a hub, you know, at another resource area if they want to. But the humans are like, wherever your starting nexus thing is, that's it. Um, to the point that I, I, I just felt like the beta had such a strategic advantage over them, uh, you know, in the long run. Mm hmm in terms of their in terms of their actual unit makeup though they are they are fairly similar uh they they do yeah, have yeah. a lot of equivalencies i mean the goo have their equivalencies too right this one's good for against buildings this one's good against armored units and it's got all those typical rts tropes and and i expect those because it's the it's the style of this rock paper scissors kind of game they're making they're not trying to you go three you know have each faction have these three completely different things i mean the, the goo are different enough i think almost in and of themselves um uh, having played with uh, the beta, uh, I really vastly prefer them over the humans. Uh, the the beta are just uh, they they're probably the most standard in terms of to my mind in terms of an, of an RTS. Mm -hmm. You know, they shoot missiles. They have little guys with machine guns. Uh, what I really like about them, though, I love this tower system they've got, where you can build walls with these tower pods on them, but you have to actually populate those pods with units. You don't just build <laughs> turrets onto the things. You actually put your units onto the towers, and that's how you arm those, and that's how you make them useful. And a bunch of your units can go on there. So depending on the makeup, you can just have everybody up on the wall. You throw a tower down. You can't damage the unit until the tower goes away, and the towers are actually fairly tough. They make a really interesting mix of either... You can really turtle with them, uh, or you can go out there and, and have different pods going at different places. And you can just throw a tower up anywhere and just throw a unit into it. And you can really harass somebody at their base doing that, too. They, they even have a unit there. Uh, the beta anti-air unit basically can't do anything unless it's attached to a hard point. It either has to be on a tower or on the hand of Rook. Like, I built a bunch of them in a match where I was getting destroyed by air power. And I was like, why aren't these guys shooting? And I realized, oh, yeah, they actually have to be on a tower for for them to even be able to operate which is kind of interesting mm -hmm. they're interesting the hand of rook uh that, that that's a cool little thing that i don't i don't think i even knew rob i think maybe you told me um i built the hand of rook and he's like you know you can put units on that i'm like what <laughs> there's like six pods on it so you can put six units and so you put a couple anti-air guys on there 
And when the uh, the goo that are basically uh, siege weapons that fire the goo blobs, of, you know, across the map and enemies and stuff, the anti-air weapons on the Tower of Rook will just shoot them down out of midair. It's beautiful. Um, it's it's such a cool, powerful uh, unit. It's such a neat moment when you throw all your units on top of that. It's got kind of a Voltron feel, which I really appreciate. Yeah, you know. I- Actually, I've ended up liking the humans. I, I think in part because I actually kind of get obsessed with the base layout game and like <laughs> running the conduit and like figuring out how I'm going to uh to, to to sort of defend my position. And they are very dependent on on the map design because there's some maps where like if you have a small starting location because there are maps where the idea of what the main would be uh, is just not that large. And that really kind of screws the humans because they kind of can't get out uh, of, of their base. Um, you can sort of wobble walk your conduit through some choke points, but a lot of them you actually can't construct that far out. Uh, so, so, so you really are limited as far as that goes. But I've kind of enjoyed... The humans have two things going for them, I, I find. One is teleportation, uh, the ability to sort of rearrange things on the fly. They're a very difficult race to successfully harass their base. Yeah. And they don't need to be out on the map. And this is the thing, like, the beta, really, like, they're perfectly tuned for getting control of the map because they can plunk these hubs down and instantly, like, hey, you know, you're, you're in the middle of the map, you can plunk down a major hub slap a couple factories down, put attachments on, get a wall set up. Immediately, you've got a really strong position where you can start producing units from. You, they're basically like made for um, like proxying, uh, you know, to, to use an RTS term. Uh, you, you, know, you're, you're, you can get right in someone's face, defend that ground, and produce on the doorstep. The humans, though, uh, the, the thing about... The, well, the, the, the disadvantage for the beta in that case is... You've got to go out on the map, though, to expand. Like, their base fills up very quickly, and so they always kind of need more room. Uh, and it can be very difficult to defend all those little expansions you, you need to have to, to succeed as, as the beta. Uh, but the humans can do it all from one central location because they can just all cram an absolute ton of factories into this very small space. And then their defensive firepower is incredible, and they can sort of rearrange their defenses on the fly. Um, you know, if you're attacking from the east, they can teleport the production buildings out to the west and uh, bring a bunch of turrets back to the east. That's actually a powerful ability. Plus, they can build teleporters and just start warping units around the map. So, I, like, th- I thought that was one cool advantage. And then this is where the faction difference, I think, comes into play a little bit. The humans, to me, felt like very precise, like, high damage units. Like, their entire MO was kind of like... They, they weren't great for, like, huge area of attack the way the beta are. They don't spit out a lot of, like, they don't spit out a lot of shots and do a lot of damage to units at once. But they sort of target and kill, like, one thing after another. They're very, they're very efficient at, like, their siege units, for instance, like, shoot out a laser beam. And will just, like, liquidate a section of wall within a few seconds. Um, you know, their, their tanks will just, like, blast other armor units to pieces in just, like, a salvo or two. Uh, their air units, if, if they're bombed bomber sees something it will kill it uh and that's something the beta don't really have the beta are great for like dip, like you know huge area of effect type attacks right uh and i thought th- that was kind of a cool difference i i thought and so it made me feel like these factions uh, you know at first glance might be really similar in, t- in terms of their units and in one of my previews i even said like they see that all these unit archetypes are in place like there's the tank there's the artillery there's the siege weapon but they're actually really different from race to race yeah, well, and the, the, one of the other things is the humans kind of need their air units to to be able to do kind of one hit one kill because they only have a very limited space they can build bases in, and this is definitely the uh, the sort of game where your air units aren't hanging around plinking at stuff. They make one pass, then they have to go back to refuel. Uh, so if you're the beta, you can kind of park some hangers on someone's doorstep and and harass them real quick. But the humans, they're always going to have to go all the way back across the map to to rebase basically um yeah i think the teleportation is something i never quite got the hang of which might be why i i didn't have as much fun with the humans as the other two factions i'll I'll definitely have to play with that more but i'm already thinking in my head like the idea of okay 
Yeah, so maybe I can't build hubs, but I could probably come up with a way to get equal force projection <laughs> to similar areas of the map if I really thought about it. So, yeah. Well, and see, this is this is the thing is this is one of those games where the more I think about it, the more these factions become interesting to me. Like, yeah, definitely. They have such different relationships with how they use space and project power onto the map. Like the beta, you know, actually has to go out and seize and, and hold ground. They can do whatever they they want once they're there. Uh, the goo don't really need it, but the they can be anywhere. But you can never turtle as they go. Like you're no. always vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then the humans, um, and and I think the teleportation issue with the humans when you're using the teleporter to warp units around the map, that is actually one of the fussier things in the game. So that can be a little bit of an issue. Um, but it is kind of key to their faction identity that they can they can pop up anywhere and sort of deliver forces as as needed uh so yeah i think it was this was a game where i felt like first glance i was a little concerned that each of the units had these each each faction had these templates they were hitting i i no longer feel that way i want to talk a little bit about the campaign because um we've tended to be harsh on rts campaigns on this show um, and a few listeners might even say we were judgmental assholes about RTS campaigns on this <laughs> I've show. I've never heard that criticism levied at this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there was there was a show basically where um, there was a show where you where you had me, Tom, and Troy on where we basically all agreed that who, we had no idea who the hell plays RTS campaigns because they clearly don't know what they're doing or why you should play an RTS. So we tended to be a little bit uh, jerkish about, about RTS campaigns. But I really like this one. And usually I cannot bring myself to get through an RTS campaign. I don't even like the Company of Heroes 1 campaign that much. And that's usually kind of an example, like, par excellence of, of, of RTS campaign design. But this one clicked with me, and uh, it, it, it really hit me on a couple levels. But I, I, I'm curious, Sean, as our, as our representative filthy casual, yes. uh, someone who's barely <laughs> played multiplayer. I bought this for, I'm the guy who buys, well, actually, no, I'm not. But, like, you know, like, the guy, I bought it for the campaign. You know, like, you, no one buys Call of Duty for this campaign. And yet, there's a silent majority of people who do. And, and I'm, I'm kind of that way with an RTS. I love the puzzle-like quality uh, of this campaign specifically. Uh, if you play StarCraft II campaigns, there's always a few missions that are really giving you something new, giving you something to solve rather than just build up your base, build up your units, and go kill stuff. Um, like the humans, when you get a little ways in, a few missions into that human campaign, you need to go and rescue um, uh, this this guy out of a pod, basically. And Specialist Redgrave? Thank you. Oh, no, 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 the, the AI dude. The AI, the AI dude. dude, yeah. Singleton. So, Singleton, yeah. So you got to go rescue Singleton. Every time, I failed at this map a number of times. Every time they load the map again, they put the rescue pods you need to go free up in a different place on the map. They randomize it. So you know where they are, but it's always random. And the whole point is that there is a sort of timer going on. Once you find a pod, you've got to get in there, activate it. It takes about 30 seconds. Meanwhile, there's always enemies attacking that area activates it there's some units in there you got to keep them alive and use that momentum to go for the next pod and you've got to keep building up toward that all while defending your base navigating it because there's a there's an exit and uh, an entrenched beta position he's got they've got walls all over the place turrets all over the place so you've really got to find a balanced uh, approach uh, you can't necessarily just turtle up um, and and throw a ton of units out there and just steamroll the whole thing. You've got a bit of a clock to deal with as well. Uh, there's a lot of missions like that where they're not just saying, "Okay, here's your base. Uh, you gotta, I don't know, go kill those guys for reasons." You know, like they'll start you <laughs> on a map where you plays the beta. You're in a base that's established, just getting the shit kicked out of it by goo. And there's enough defense to hold them off, but if you don't keep building up that defense and work on it, you're going to get overwhelmed in about, eh, you know, about three or four minutes. You've got a hand of rook that's heavily damaged. You got to try and manage all that stuff. It's got the best qualities of StarCraft or Command and Conquer or any of those games that have these really nice, unique, challenging maps that don't feel, every single map feels like a different angle to approach things and and they build it in such a way that you're still learning the units what they're capable of what they're for they're they're challenging you to to try different things and do different approaches 
to solve these problems uh, in a way that's, I don't know, it, it's challenging as hell, but it doesn't feel unbalanced. Yeah, you know, it's this is one of the first RTS campaigns I, I've seen where I've seen a lot of people talking about how they're just getting their asses kicked in, in this campaign. Mm-hmm. Like um, Steven Strom, who reviewed it for Ars Technica and is uh, one of my fellow writers at, at Red Bull, um, he, you know, he actually put on, he actually mentioned on Twitter, he was, he was having issues with a particular mission in the, uh, in the campaign fairly early. And, uh, it was a mission that was, uh, just a mission or so before the one that I was having a, a huge amount of trouble with. And it, the things I really like here is that I think one of my big complaints about RTS campaigns in general is they have no connection whatsoever to the multiplayer game. You know, it, it's exactly what you said, Sean, where it's like, look, just, just build up a bunch of units and go steamroll that base because reasons. Uh, and the problem is, like, the game never actually plays that way in the wild. You will never you will never have to do that uh, unless you're playing a, a really bad AI or a total scrub. Uh, but this is a game where the AI will, like, start doing harassment tactics really early, and if you don't figure out, like, how to sort of micro your units and defend your base effectively, you'll just fold up. You won't be able to get anything done. Um, you know, this is, like, you have to figure out really quickly in some missions, like, how do I, you know, how many of my forces can I split off to go and clear the map and, and sort of, like, secure special, uh, secure Singleton, for instance, these little, like, groups of, of friendly units on this map, but then I also need to hold some back and defend my base. And in the meantime, we got to figure out how to sort of bust through these these beta entrenchments. And this is the the campaign throws all these challenges at you, but it usually feels like it is playing from a familiar. It feels like it's playing from a um from the from the multiplayer playbook. Oh, uh, completely. And uh, and they also do uh, they also do stuff that you, you're going to need to reckon with in multiplayer a lot more, which is dealing with tree cover, uh, dealing with units oh, yeah. hiding in the bush. That's something we haven't mentioned yet. But if you've got units in trees, they can shoot out of them at enemies. Enemies can't shoot in uh, unless they've got units in the same tree area to, to reveal them. I think there's maybe a, a unit or two that'll get you around that a little bit. But generally speaking, you've got to deal with that. So that that one um, uh, human mission we're talking about, that's in a swamp. There's tons of tree cover. You've got to really use that to to, to, to your advantage. And it's really going to screw you if you're not cognizant of it as you're moving through. Because you'll just be going down a road and you'll just get blasted out of trees and you won't be able to fire back. And by the time you fight your way into the trees, you've lost half your your army that you built up. Um, it, it really keeps you on your toes. It's it's a hard counter against air too because air units flying over the trees can't see in there unless they actually have a spotter on the ground. Uh, some of them can kind of like do blind fire into trees where you think an enemy might be, but you can't uh, actually see in there, which leads to more of kind of what I was talking about earlier with some of the fine micro um, that happens in in higher end engagements where it's like okay. Um, I would normally be focus firing this guy because he does more damage, but if I go for this guy that has a little bit more HP, I can block off their line of sight into the trees for like two and a half seconds, and that might actually make the difference in in who wins this battle. Um, So I I like that mechanic a lot, Um, even even if it does sort of steer more towards micro and tactics and less away from Mm -hmm. the strategy focus that uh the petroglyph has been sort of selling the game on they totally uh, lifted that from praetorians by the way uh from uh, pyra studios back in 2003 uh praetorians had this whole system of putting units into the woods and ambushing units that were on the roads is it was actually really fun hmm, i never played praetorians oh man finally a strategy game i've played that rob's acne hasn't <laughs> i'm gonna put it up on the big board it's it's excellent from Pyro Studios. It, the Gog, oh, wow. good old game. Gog has it. It's it's. I don't go past me. I don't know. I don't know. Huh. Okay. But, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the campaign, I kind of felt like that um, the presentation was really good, but the actual structure and missions uh, didn't impress me a whole lot. Like uh, now that you guys mention it, the way the AI behaves in the campaign is actually really good. Uh, but if you think about the types of objectives you're given. And the fact that it's, you know, it's 15 linear missions, you don't really make any choices. You have bonus objectives, but they don't really carry over as as some sort of boon that you can take with you into future missions. They're just achievement you know, fodder. Right. I mean, it, 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 
kind of felt simplistic. It was very well well presented. The cutscenes were great. The voice acting was like blew me away in terms of what I was expecting versus what I actually got. Yeah. Uh, for a game like this, um, but I, I don't know. I felt I felt like the the structure of the campaign and the structure of the missions was not anything particularly um groundbreaking and yeah. some of them were just annoying like the last mission for the goo we talked about them not being a turtle faction the last mission you have to defend three separate pylons basically from constant attack and i eventually figured out that i just needed to wipe out basically every enemy structure on the base to even be able to do that because they're so terrible at defending a fixed position yeah well <laughs> okay so I think there's a couple things there uh, that, I, that I want to talk about because, uh, first, I haven't finished the campaign. Uh, second, <laughs> second uh, so I definitely think, like, I think StarCraft II kind of spoiled us a little bit. Uh, where, where you had these interesting missions and, and all these, you know, the, the, all these different levels basically, and it has no similarity to the multiplayer. Uh, but StarCraft II kind of turns that into a strength and gives you lots of little choices you can make and creates all these little interesting scenarios that are, that are very different. And there's usually sort of a neat twist happening in the mission. And Grey Goo doesn't really, really have any of that. And I, I sort of agree that, um, one mission is much like another in terms of you're still playing Grey Goo sort of as it's meant to be played. Uh, I also felt like at times the story, as told through cutscenes, and I did like the cutscenes a great deal. Uh, I thought the, the the story was good. I think it is maybe a little too concerned about wasting your time. It unfolds very briskly. Uh, you know, yeah. I, the... the People were uniting to stop the goo before I even really accepted the goo was this massive, like, galaxy-destroying threat. Like, I was like, eh, yeah. got a little yeah. goo problem, I say. It's like termites, right? It's like, boy, that's... <laughs> yeah. little... oh, Don't oh, want oh, these no. hanging Hold around. Hold on, lift up the floor bring down the resale value. You got goo all over here in the corner. <laughs> you have to fog for that. You got to move out for a few days at least. Yeah. Uh, right, you expect the humans to call in, like, the boss, and just some dude just out there like, vacuum, cam, Just out there, like, like, shop vacs, just sucking them up. Like, oh, goo everywhere is the worst. It's like a college dorm room out here. Uh, but... Uh, but one thing I do like, just you know, the, just the the presentation and story overall. What I really liked is in the very very beginning opening cutscenes. You've got the beta. You know, they've got these. They're they're humanoid figures. They have these little arms coming out of their chest, and they have their big beefy arms, more like you know human arms. And they're like, you know, like they have like their alien language. And then it goes to the cutscene, and then it's like, oh, hey, mate. Hey, let's go do a mission. And they, uh, that's more Australian. They're, they have these New Zealander accents. I, I was I was immediately charmed. I loved it so much. I love New Zealander aliens. I, I think it's just we need more of that. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely um, it, it's it's striking uh, when, when you hear the, when you hear these these uh, these really recognizable distinctive accents coming out of these these alien mouths and, and then they try to do some characterization depending on the accent like you got some like australian roughneck type because there's a couple dudes who don't sound like kiwi they they, they like kiwis they, they sound like australian roughnecks basically like and those are sort of the more like hard bitten like sarge type betas and then you've got like slightly more lilting like new zealand aliens it's it's hilarious, uh, but I, I think, you know, one of the things when um, I previewed this game, one of the things they're really proud of is, like, they were working with uh, Weta Workshops, and they're, like, they're helping us do world building, and they're helping us design all our, all our factions and stuff, and I was, it's one of those things where I am just so skeptical of all things RTS, like, campaign related and, like, world building, that I was sitting there like, oh my god, you get, like, how much are you spending on this? Like, do you, like, you're making an RTS? Like, does this even matter? Like, who needs this? Mm. But I think it kind of paid off. Like, there is a distinctive, like, visual style to every race and every environment that uh, is is really striking. Like, the 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 quality of of art direction in this game, I think is definitely a cut above your, well, and this is probably something Petroglyph we know has had problems with in the past. Petroglyph has had trouble getting out of the, uh, 
like machine fantasy motif of like the Command and Conquer games. And I feel like Weta kind of showed up and was like, no, here's some here's some other you know some other ideas you can work from. And uh, I think the result's really good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I just kind of pulled up some Universe War footage just to remind myself again of that interface and that the look of that. And oh my god, it's it's like a War of the Worlds, like just vomited all over a, an Egyptian pyramid. Like I just can't even get my head around what they're doing with it. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think that getting a third party in to help with that made sense, and 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 it's a great looking game. Like great goose, like it looks great. Great production values. It it holds its own right up there with StarCraft. The cutscenes look great, um, and the story is what it is. It's whatever. But just the the just watching the game play, just seeing all this stuff happen, it's visually really interesting. It's really fun to watch. Uh, so from a from a casual player perspective, that's really important. Like you know, it's like I don't want something that's too dry. Well, and it, it seems like they want to go, without spoiling anything, they want to go to a franchise with it. The The ending of the campaign definitely leaves some major plot threads hanging. Well, you're um, never going to get all the, that goo yeah. out. I mean, you're never going to really get all <laughs> yeah, the goo yeah. out. They're, the the next one will just be gray crust. Like, the goo is oh. gone, but they're needing to scrape just oh. the last little bit yeah. Yeah. off yeah. of the, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah. So I think one of the things they told me is that their publisher, uh, Graybox, actually does intend this to be a franchise, but not necessarily an RTS franchise. And that's one reason why they invested in, in, in Weta's uh, help with world building, is that the sketch I was given, basically, of, of the overall plan for this is uh, that, and, and I, I don't think this is set in stone by any means, but that there's going to be more than one game set in this universe uh, across different genres. Uh, and so that's that's one reason why you get that. It sort of finishes on an incomplete note, and uh, why they spent so much like effort creating this the, the this world and uh, these these different factions. So I, I definitely it's, it was just kind of an interesting idea, and I'm very curious to see how how that pans out as well because I don't think anyone's really uh, tried this sort of from from the start, right? Like Blizzard sort of stumbled into it uh, via Warcraft, but I'm not sure anyone's gone in like saying. We're going to create one big overarching, you know, intellectual property, and then have all these things sort of spoking off of it. Um, but you know, so I ended up giving this a, a a very positive review for PC Games N. I gave it a nine out of ten. Uh, so I, I clearly liked it a lot more than uh, I was a little more over the moon for it than, than you were, TJ. Um, yeah, and it was one of those things I was sort of on the border between like an eight or a nine like was i you know there, there's this part of me the sort of more the 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 colder critical part of me that was like boy i don't know about the balance in this game i'm not sure the goo really are that balanced like they're so vulnerable i i'm you know i wish i could pick out the differences in units when they're all in a big mob i wish visually i could pick that out a little more so i could like tell the units apart because it gets a little chaotic there are all these little like nits that that i had to pick uh but in the end, I just I I, I I I came up against the fact that I haven't clicked this hard with an RTS in an absolute age. Like this is the first one in 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 like literal years that I don't just appreciate, but I'm actually actually actively like playing the hell out of it once my review assignment is done. I'm playing more of it than I strictly need to. And, and so you know, there's just there's a level of delight that I had with this game that um, is just very unusual for me uh, at this point, and especially with with RTSs. And so I just, you know, I kind of had to sort of tip my you know tip my hat to that, and, and sort of you know listen to my heart, as it were. Uh, but 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 TJ, what like what are your we, we've been praising this game a lot, but you you gave it a positive you gave it a positive review, but you definitely had some reservations. I'm just curious, like what what, what was holding you back? What what couldn't you let yourself love? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think I had a similar experience to you. Or like, yeah, this this really is the the first RTS that I have clicked with in a big way. That you know that that didn't uh, star Sarah Kerrigan in quite a long time. Um, and I end up I give it a seven point six, which on IGN's you know, rating scale is good. They do like good, great, excellent. So I'm always kind of asking myself, okay, is this a good game? Is it a great game? Like, I didn't feel like it was quite great uh, just on the basis of 
the campaign, you know, I, I talked about the linearity mm. of it and sort of the bare bonesness of it probably brought me down a little bit, even though the presentation was excellent. Um, I had, you know, I definitely have balance concerns still regarding can this actually work? I'd love to be proven wrong on that, where the factions, the goo specifically, are just so different and weird that I'd love to see, you know, a, a version of this game that could actually be an esport because they've actually figured out that, yeah, despite how crazy and weird they are, they actually can work competitively if you get your head around them the right way. Um, I think those were really my two. My two biggest concerns, I mean, I docked a couple points for some technical issues, but that's, you know, not yeah. not of a, a lot of substance, especially if you look further post-launch. Um, just kind of the nature of reviewing yeah. games on day one, you have to review the code as is. Um, I, I definitely, I flirted with the, the 80 to 90 range in my head for a little bit, and if I had followed my heart more as, as you did, it might have ended up a little bit higher up on that scale. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah. I also didn't have Dan Stapleton uh, sort of <laughs> pushing against my enthusiasm. Like, Dan's definitely a guy who sits you down and, and gets real with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, before yeah. a review goes live, which is <laughs> which is usually good. But at PC Games End, I'm like, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I am so glad I don't have to score things. Oh, man, just the, the, just the, the, the emotional turmoil. Do I give it a 9 or an 8? Well, Maybe yeah, a 7.6? Yeah, the, the 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 actual score becomes kind of a, a little bit silly when you talk about it like in numbers like this. But like when you when, like I think TJ and I ended up in different places. Like just how emphatically did we recommend this game? Like we both liked it. Uh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, I think the 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 caveat I put in my review is I think this is going to leave a lot of people cold who want their games to have like um, a limitless skill cap. Because I think this, like I think, at a certain point, this game actually probably does get maxed out. If if you're, you know, if you're a certain type of player, um, it, it'll start to seem a little bit too uh, baby's first RTS um, because some of the reasons we, we mentioned earlier. But the fact that you're so into it, Sean, the fact you're here for the show, I think, yeah. is kind of telling. One of the things that. You know, the, the big problem for the RTS genre is the hardest core RTS is something that most people never really learn how to play the way it's it's meant to be played. Like, I still can't play StarCraft II the way it's designed to be played. Like, I do not, like, I do not play StarCraft II. I play some crappy version of StarCraft II because I do not have the skill. <laughs> yeah. and I, don't, I can't train myself to play it the way, like, Blizzard has drawn it up and uh, tested it to work out. Um and I think, you know, in the in the past, this is what the role of the RTS campaign has been, is, hey, we're going to design this thing that, like, a fraction of the audience can actually manage. And then for the rest of you groundlings, uh, here's this campaign you can have, you know, 12, 15 hours of fun with. Uh, this is one of the first where, where I feel that, yeah, the campaign uh, definitely, like, teaches you how to play the, the, uh, the multiplayer game. But then I feel like that multiplayer game... There is room for me to get better, but the game isn't ceaselessly reminding me like you suck, you're just garbage at this. The way Star, the way like honestly, the way StarCraft is, where it's like, oh man, like this three, you call that three base macro? That's, that's terrible, son. How do you know what you just said three base macro? I mean, that sounds like a thing, so I'll take your word for it. And that and that's that's where I'm coming from. I actually don't think Grey Goo is going to be an esport uh, darling. I mean, partially just because that field is pretty well set, but. Um, I do think that it's it's not. I think there's something to appreciate in your ability to micro, and I think there are interesting strategies to employ. But the reasons I like this game, I think, are the reasons it's not going to have the depth required because it doesn't have that massive, huge approach. I feel like eventually there's going to be one way to play the goo really effectively. There's going to be one or two ways to play the humans in the beta effectively. These are all things that I like about this game uh, because it's the first game that I've actually I'm using the hotkeys because they're clear to me and I don't need to remember six of them for every unit it's very broad strokes in that way in the same way that when I play Heroes of the Storm uh, in a genre that I just detest um, I really <laughs> like it because it takes away things for me to know it's like here's just broad strokes work on your position and you've got a few powers and go have fun i feel like gray goo falls into the same category it's not going to appeal to the hardcore existing players but for people like myself who are lapsed rts players um i think gray goo really hits a nice sweet spot is it worth the 50 bucks 55 bucks 
What's fifty dollars um, to anyone? To I yeah, I bought it. Uh, I didn't. I didn't get a press copy. My my love is is bought and paid for by myself. Um, and uh, and I'm loving it. I think it was worth every penny. Um, but uh, going by my Steam list, I've got about. 300 people on my Steam's friends list. Uh, six people own this game, and I think one of them is Rob Zachney. Uh, so, like, I, I, I get a sense that, that there's a lot of hesitation out there uh, because it does seem like an RTS clone, and therefore maybe they are reaching a little high on the price. I feel like that's going to drop pretty quick. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I, I hope it wor- I hope it works out just because I, I like seeing good games sort of get their, uh, yeah. you know, like sort of... Basically, I like seeing a good game rewarded with sales, so I, I see more of that, and so it sort of catches on a little bit. But I will say, um, you shouldn't be chased off. Like, the game may not seem super popular, but this is also a game where if I click on like matchmaking pretty much any time of day, I'm in a match within a minute. Yeah, uh, it's so been pretty. Uh, it's been pretty consistently towards the top of the 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 top new sellers whatever that tab is called now on Steam, and it's had stuff to compete with. So yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, I think we'll leave it there. A uh, pretty resounding set of recommendations. You'll 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 at least like it. Uh, you you might love it, um, or if you're you're Tom Chick, you'll just wonder why you've been bothered. <laughs> uh, but I I, I kind of feel there. I, I kind of feel like um, Tom's seen it all, done it all. I think if you read that review, uh, and I, it's it's fascinating to me to read that review because like a lot of the things he says, I totally agree with. And he just ended up on a completely different side of the fence than I did. Like, we're looking at the same thing. And I'm like, yeah, I love yeah, it. And he's yeah. like, who would do this? I felt the, felt the same way, actually, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, but I, but I think especially if you're kind of the lapsed RTS player, um, you know, your 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 gooey ship has come in. And it's, a better, it's a better entry point than StarCraft 2, oh. for sure. Yeah, by really, far. Really yeah. En- I'm enjoying this campaign more than StarCraft 2's. Yep. Yep. All right, uh, I think we'll leave it there, and we'll be back next week with uh, something else, I think, from our winter of wargaming. Uh, but until then, uh, thanks to TJ and Sean and to our producer, Michael Hermes, for putting this together on a week where uh, he's had a sick child uh, and a whole lot of messiness to clean up. So, uh, Michael, we're definitely thinking of you, and uh, we'll be back soon with more Three Moves Ahead. Good night, everybody. Good night. Later.